So uh, Renee reviewed my message and she said, you don't have any groaners. So I said, well, I got to start with the groaner. So are you all ready? You got your groan on? You ready? So this, it's, it's a joke on construction. Y'all want to hear a joke on construction? I'm still working on it. Seriously, I just got a shovel. And I don't know if you knew this, but that's a groundbreaking invention, really. Groundbreaking. Uh, all right. So here we go. Are you ready? Say amen. amen. So at his height, at his height, Pablo Escobar was the seventh richest person in the world, which is really hard to believe that this drug trafficker who built a cocaine empire became the seventh wealthiest person in the world, according to Forbes magazine. At the height of his success, he was raking in somewhere around $420 million every week. It's hard to get your head around that kind of number, $400 million a week. Of course, this led to his net worth at the time of his death, something around $30 billion, which in today's currency would be about $50 billion. It's just ridiculous amount of money. In fact, it was so much money, and I know you, you share this problem, he had too much money. Amen? Nobody? Nobody? Anyhow, because what do you do with all that money? And his brother who wrote a book about this after he passed, revealed some of the things they did with all this excess money. So the first thing they did was they tried to put some money in the bank overseas. But Pablo insisted he was the only one that had the account numbers. So when he died, much of that wealth is still in banks overseas, frozen in accounts that no one can access. So what they did with a lot of the money, $420 million a week, which is absolutely mind-blowing, absolutely crazy. What they did, real creative, they buried it in the ground. They're like, let's dig a hole in the ground and store the money. And so that was they do. They would bundle it all up. And this is actually one of the craziest details in reading the book that I read. And I just want to show you what sort of money we're talking about. $420 million, because you can only spend so much money on cars and planes and two submarines that he had. So he actually started his own personal zoo in Colombia, uh, which was when he wasn't buying islands. But basically, at the peak of the craziness, when the narco money is coming in, he spent $2,500, $2,500 every single year on rubber bands just to bundle the Benjamins. Some of you are like, $2,500 is a lot of money. So can you imagine that? Just $2,500 worth of rubber bands. And in the book, the brother says they would actually write off about 10% every year of how much money they had because they would come back to their cash deposits that they had buried and they would find that rats had eaten. They would find rats actually chewing on the bundled $100 bills. So you think about it, grocery stores, you know, they write off 10% because food expires. Pablo's writing off 10% because the rats are chewing his money. In, in 1993, the year he was killed, he was killed at the age of 44. And look, this is not a glorifying Pablo Escobar hour. I mean, he's responsible for upwards of 7,000 deaths, all right? So I'm going somewhere, I promise you. Some of you are like, what the heck is happening here? What kind of church is this? And then some of you are like, this is the best sermon I've heard in a long time. So... So it depends on what interests you. But there was a farmer 
right? There was a farmer and he was preparing his field on a new plantation that he had purchased and it was an oil palm plantation. And he purchased it from land that was repossessed and recovered by the Colombian government when they seized Pablo's land. And they were stunned. Now get this, the authorities only found $8 million. He's worth $30 billion. They only found eight. So much of it is still buried out there. But sort of a clue emerged when in Colombia there was a farmer. He got an excavator going, and all of a sudden, clink, clink, it hit something metal. Like classic. This is the Pirates of the Caribbean edition, okay? The whole field literally was covered with those Walter White Heisenberg metal barrels. Some of you got that metaphor, some of you didn't. That was a Breaking Bad, remember that movie? Remember that show? Crystal blue persuasion barrels, right? And he pops out of this thing, uh, and these metal barrels held, this farmer found in one barrel, get this, $600 million. I don't care what kind of farmer you are, that's a pretty good crop. And that was just one of the many cash deposits sprinkled, they believe, all over Colombia, perhaps even Mexico. In fact, they have found some of Pablo's money as far as Miami, Florida. So I want you to take that thought with me, uh, not Pablo Escobar and his submarines, but the actual thought of the farmer working in the field and finding as the title of my message is, Hidden Treasure or Buried Treasure, because that's what Paul has in mind in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness. Made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So whose light's going to shine in our hearts, church? God's light. Paul continues, but we have this treasure, right, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Look, if I invited one of you to come up on stage, right, and I gave you a bar of gold worth millions, how many of you would try and protect it? How many of you would say, you know, I got to go, and you'd run home and maybe get a security deposit box, right? Make sure it's safe and not stolen or ruined. The Bible says, look, we are made out of clay, but we have this treasure, God's light and love inside all of us. And so it's sort of like taking a jar of clay and putting into it that bar of gold, not a very safe place to put a treasure, right? It's like hiding money in a mattress, not very safe if someone wanted to steal it. But a jar of clay can hold God's light. In fact, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946 in jars of clay. Paul says, look, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And we know that a jar of clay is not very sturdy. When you tip it over, it breaks. There's not much you can do about this. And Paul says it's for this reason. There's a reason that God has put into his jars of clay, his treasures. And that is so the jars of clay would be reminded that they have no power and that your power comes from God. Paul realized, man, I'm just a jar of clay. I have no strength on my own. But when I have Christ's light living in me, man, what can I do? 
So you and I were jars of clay, but inside of us, there's this treasure, God's light, God's love, God's touch. Jesus made this remarkable statement, right? And, and I could ask it this way. How many of you would say you're a Christian? If you raise your hand, you say you've accepted Jesus in your heart and your life. I hope your hands are up. Jesus said in John 14, 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and we'll make our home with them. Wait a minute, you mean Jesus, God can make his home inside my heart? Inside this jar of clay, right? We're God's home, yes, but listen, we're his home made out of mud, made out of earth. Now this is true in the most literal sense, right? This is actually biologically true. If you look at what composes our body, it's very much the same as the ground. And that's why so easily after we die, we return ashes to ashes, finish it with me if you know it, and dust to dust. That's how we started, right? Talk about starting from the bottom, y'all, right? Then the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground. You can just picture God, right? You know, kind of gathering up some dust into a pile, right? A, a dust pile, right? And then what did he do? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then man became light, a life, a living being, all right, dust. Sometimes my wife, Renee, she'll get all mad at me. She's like, look at all this dust. Look at all this dirt you're bringing into the house. I'm like, hey, that's God's, God's handiwork right there. It's God's holy dirt. Now imagine God sort of forming up the dirt. And you, if you could just pause, like maybe you're an angel because there was no one else to witness this moment. God had just finished creating the world, right? God had just finished creating the, the Milky Way. And God had just finished creating the Grand Canyon. And God had just finished... Uh, Big Bend National Park. And you think about this. He's divided water from land and created all the animals and the birds and the fish of the sea. But now he's turned to what was called the, the crown jewel of creation. And, and now he's turned to us, to making us. Now, we're not, we're not necessarily uh, higher than the angels. We're a little bit lower. But, but God created us and, and the scripture says the one thing that's unique about us, different than everything else, is God created us in God's image. We're trusted with his likeness. And so he said to speak of all creation, but now watch this. And he began to pile some dust together. And if you would have just looked right there and seen God sort of stooped over just over this pile of dust. But God looked longly at that pile of dust. And, and, and God would have said, I don't see a pile of dirt. I see a home for my breath. Whew. Dang. Wow. And he breathed into our nostrils. And so we are. And so we are to this day. A home for God's breath. Every person you see is a home for God's breath. And that's true individually. It's also true corporately. For Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, this is not just true in, in in the theological world, it's true in about so many things. We always want what's inside the container, right? What goes inside the package? We don't want the package, unless you're a little kid like at Christmas time and you think the box is better than the present, right? It, it's the splendor you want, not the, the paper wrapper. It's the drink you want, not the straw. The canal is never the point, right? The pipe was never the point. 
All the pipes that went in your house, right? It was never about the pipes. You're like, yeah, you know, my house has got the best set of PVC plumbing pipes you've ever seen. You could get water? Nah, but it's got the best pipes you've ever seen. You ever seen anybody say that? Oh, my house has the best plumbing in the neighborhood. It's not about that, right? It's not about what's the outside of you or the clay or the dust. No, it's always about what flows through you, God's love and God's light. You see, the emphasis in this passage is to never make us feel like we're a big deal. It's never about you. It's not about the clay. It's about what God does inside of you and what God does through you. See, the truth is you're a pile of dirt. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a pile of dirt. We're just piles of dirt, but we're piles of dirt with God's breath. Now turn to your neighbor. If you're watching at home, tell someone at home, you may be dirt, but you know what? You're full of God's power. We're dirt that God has set his name upon. We're dirt that God has given his commission to. We're dirt that he's called to dance this life with him and relationship with him and community together with him. And the power and the excellency and the authority, it's all what comes from inside of us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. It's a buried treasure, right? It's a treasure deep down inside of us. The excellence is about what's inside of us, not about us, not about our clay. But we don't always see it, right? No, we don't always see it because this culture that we live in, man, they like to, they like to be about the clay. They like to decorate the clay. And in our culture today, uh, particularly in these this hurting times nationally that we are in where, where there is obviously racism present, people are all about what's the color of the clay? And, and people are about, hey, my clay, you know, looks better than your clay. And people do all sorts of things to make sure their clay looks good. And, and you know, you just think about Kardashians, right? right? My, my clay is bigger than your clay and I got a bigger clay back here and all that. But here's what happens. Clay gets old and wrinkled and worn out. And sometimes we focus on the outside of the clay and we miss the most important part of another person. And that is the divine image, God's breath. And we miss out on the buried treasure. I went to this little, uh, coffee shop stingers the other day I was having a cup of coffee and there was a guy in there with a nurse uniform on he might have been an orderly but he looked tired he looked defeated and he was he was reading some text and they were obviously depressing him and getting down and he actually started to have a few tears and and the spirit prompted me God's spirit said you need to reach out to him and, and I'm like Ah, no, I don't want to be pastor right now. I just want to drink my cup of coffee and relax. And the spirit's like, hey, reach out to him. And then I said to the spirit, I said, you ever had these conversations? I said, well, he'll think I'm weird. And the spirit said, we already know you're weird. So I reached out to him. In that moment, right before I reached out to him, I was struck by, you know, what it means to be a friend to someone. See, there's a world of difference between being friendly to someone because they're useful to you, right? What they can do for you and just being someone's friend. There was nothing he can do for me. And so I did. I reached out to him. It was a little bit awkward, but we began to have a conversation and I was so thrilled to find in him. He was willing to talk about Jesus and God. And he told me about the God that he didn't believe in. And I didn't believe in that God either. And we talked about some of his hangups about Jesus and I'm willing to meet him again. We're going to have coffee again this week. I'm not saying we got a bromance, but I got a new friend. 
And I drove back to work. I just smiled and I said, thanks, God, for, for prompting me. Thanks for sending that spirit to, to reach out, to let my light shine, to let what's inside of me really come out. It was like the whole afternoon God was speaking to me because I came back to the office and I started listening to a podcast and it was about a name, man named Don Kao. And he's, he was, he has since passed, but he was the CEO of Coca-Cola. And he was talking about how he made Coca-Cola successful. And on the podcast, I was listening to things and I was like, you know what, the things he did at Coca-Cola, it can apply to the church, right? It can apply to your life. And he was asked, what are some of the secrets to running Coca-Cola? What are some of the secrets to making Coca-Cola great? And, and here's what's crazy. He said, I always want the answer to be yes. And I was like, answer? What, what's the question? What, this is the secret to leading him in Coca-Cola? He said, I always wanted the answer to this question to be yes when I'm driving home each day. And the question is, did I polish the Coke brand just a little bit today? Did I polish the brand? He said, as the CEO, the brand was in my hand. And his goal was to polish the brand just a little bit every day. And the guy interviewing was like, well, what does that mean? And the CEO said, you know, it could be the smallest thing. It was like if I was driving home and I could think of something I did to polish the brand up that little bit, I wanted to be able to say yes. Maybe it was lunch with a coworker, And I spoke about values and I talked about mission. Like, what are we trying to sell? We'll sell Coca-Cola. What's the value? I'm thinking rot everyone's teeth. No, I'm not. that's just a bad joke. Disrespectful, I'm sorry. But you see what I'm saying? Like he was saying, maybe it was a conversation with a coworker. Maybe it was a letter he wrote. Maybe it was an email he sent. Maybe it was a meeting he led. My goal, he said, was with my whole heart just to do a little small thing to polish up that Coca-Cola brand a little bit every day. And I just thought about that in my own life as a follower of Christ. Do I, do I polish the brand of Jesus? And I don't know if you're aware of this, one of the synonyms for being a, a Jesus follower, because that's what we're talking about today. When I say I follow Jesus, he's in my heart, he's in my home, he, he rules this clay. Uh, I'm part of the church, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. I want my life to be a little Jesus, a little picture of heaven. I want to be a part of that, a brick in the wall. What we're saying is I want to be an ambassador. In fact, that's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. You are his ambassador, an ambassador for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What does that mean? He's saying we're God's royal representatives, right? You're holy dirt. And, and that means when we talk to people, we should picture it like God's trying to talk to them through us. See, we've got to polish the brand of God's kingdom every day. Let your light shine. And then I thought about that guy at Stinger's Coffee. See, I don't always notice people when they're hurting. I'm really good at not noticing sometimes. But when we begin to live in the love of God, we begin to pay attention to people the way God pays attention to people. Have you polished the brand of Jesus lately? Sheldon Van Aken says, the best argument for Christianity is Christians their joy, their certainty, their completeness, their love. But he also says, guess what the best argument against it is? When Christians are somber and joyless and self-righteous and smug and narrow and judgmental and repressive, and I would add racist, Christianity dies a thousand deaths. 
See, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, and it's buried. God has breathed into every pile of dirt. Every person has clay, whether they're red, yellow, black, and white, they're all precious in his sight. And it's our job to help bring that treasure out, to help them find the buried treasure. And once you get that, once that revelation snaps into place, it'll change the way you speak. It'll change the way you think. It'll change the way you speak, even about the church. See, sometimes people get down on the church, and I get it. They get disappointed because churches are full of imperfect people. I get it. And I don't mean to be flippant about this and no disrespect, but sometimes when people come to our church, they're really excited. Hey, I love this church and I love grace. I love being here. And, and then they tell me about how, you know, they left their past church and all the things that were wrong with the other church. And I try to say, look, I, I understand that maybe there were some challenges and some difficulties, but no church is perfect. And you might find some of those same challenges here. And, and I just want, you know, if they're preaching Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, crucified, I want all those churches to be full. I want every church to be successful. There's plenty of room of corpus. Less than 40% of corpus goes to church. So there's plenty of room for every church to be successful. So I just try to remind them, hey, when you're talking about your previous church or when you're talking about our church, you're talking about what, what Jesus said is, is his bride. His bride. So how do I speak about you, the church? Well, you are the bride of Jesus. That's who you are if you're a Christian. So if I'm going to speak about that as the bride of Christ, uh, and that's a real forgiving lens, right? Why? Because what does a bride wear? A bride wears something like this. I'm going to show you a picture of Renee in her wedding dress. That's my wife 26 years ago. Almost, almost to the date, to the month. And, and, and God certainly spoiled me with that one, right? Someone said to me, take a mental picture of what she looks like and always remember that I don't need a mental picture. I can remember it. I got it. It's burned in the deepest part of my soul, my wife on that day. You know, when I got married, my wife was just like resolute. She was just like, I do. She was ready to go. I was a weeping, crying mess how many pastors did it take to marry a pastor? It took three for me, right? So here's the reality. As good as my wife looks in that wedding dress on that day, God sees you that way, the church, every day. Now, I don't think you got that. You'd be in a fetal position crying because of that love. It's too much for you. You don't have it. Here's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say to you on your worst day, on your first day in your bathing suit after coming out of pandemic quarantine, when you've been eating Cheetos and Twinkies and watching TV all day, when you look in the mirror and you put on the swimsuit and you're like, uh-oh, this ain't good. And you got to go to Wally, Wally World and buy the stretchy swimsuit, right? You may see yourself that way, but God sees you as a bride wearing white on her wedding day. And you have to realize the wedding dress, look, my wife looks great in everything. My wife's, you know, tiny. She's 99 pounds. So everything I'm about to say is not about her, right? But let's be clear. The wedding dress is, the, and I've done a ton of weddings, 25 years of weddings. The wedding dress is the single most forgiving garment that's ever been invented. And that's for a reason, right? Everyone looks good in a wedding dress. I heard one pastor say, look, even Dennis Rodman looked good in the wedding dress. You think about it, it's true, right? Like, dang, that's incredible. So why? 
Because it doesn't really show what you look like, right? It makes you look like an angel, right? Well, it's the shape of a bell, right? And the train goes like 12 yards, right? And there's lace involved. And so overpoweringly glowy, right? Is there's radiance and you're just shining. No, is it she shining or is it just a wedding dress? Or is there a special angel's kiss on brides? Or is the dress, right? I don't know which one it is. Maybe it's both. But that's the point. And the reality is we pick this garment to really enhance the aurora of that moment. And it's not for no reason that when God says, when he pictures you, the church, he sees a bride adorned as a woman on her wedding day. And what God is saying, my heart leaps when I think about you gathering together to worship me. So what does God think about the church? He's like, well... Did you miss last Sunday? And you're like, yeah, I missed. It's still okay. God still sees you as holy clay. He's like, you're the bride on the wedding day. It covers the multitude of sin. So how are we going to speak about the church? We're going to speak about her as the bride of Christ. See, what I'm trying to say to you today when I say to you, look, you're holy dirt and you're the bride of Christ is this message is it is not prescriptive. It is not 45 steps to success or, or the six things you need to do to get your habits right. I'm not telling you how to live. This message is descriptive. I'm trying to tell you who you are because the culture tells you to focus on the outside, on the clay. And God's word says, focus on the inside. So many churches get it wrong. So many churches focus on, right, sins of the flesh, smoking, drinking, cussing, all these sort of things. Those are things that you can control. What Jesus most focused on was not sins of the flesh, but sins of the heart, pride, envy, resentment, greed, things I can hide from you. That's what's important, the inside. When you know you are mud, when you know you are dirt, but you're holy dirt, when you know you're just a clay jar, but you have God's light and love shining in you, it changes how you live. It changes how you see yourself and how you see others. When you know your worth, no one can make you worthless. No one. You don't need another person, place, or thing to make you whole. God has already done that. You're already the bride of Christ. Your job is to actually know it. So back to Escobar. You're like, yeah, back to Pablo. The part of the sermon I really like. Do you know that there's only two places in the world where you can see a hippopotamus, a hippopotamus in the wild. One is in Africa and the other is South America. And that's because Pablo Escobar built a zoo. And he had elephants, and he had rhinos, and he had all kinds of animals. And so when the Colombian government seized his land, they turned over most of those animals to the Colombian zoo. But there were four hippopotamuses that they didn't know what to do with, and the zoo had no way of containing them. And so they decided to just let him go free. Well, flash forward 30 years later, and there is a a bomb that exploded in terms of the hippopotamus population in South America because their populations are expanding. They've been found as far as 100 miles away from where they were originally let go. They have no natural predator. In Africa, when the hippopotamuses are young, they can eat, be eaten by a lion or a crocodile. In South America, there's no such predators. In Africa, there's natural rhythms and cycles of drought that keep the population in check. There's no such drought in South America. And so basically the conditions under which the hippopotamus has been living in South America, it's like hippo heaven. And all these hippos are living their best life now. Hashtag, you know, hippo heaven, right? 
And so what you have going on and quickly escalating is a habitat shift. And it says it could even wipe out the manatees, but don't worry. If we just turn back to plastic straws, I think we could kill the hippos. That was a joke. I know it was bad. No one's laughing. Crickets. The ultimate long-term legacy, here's my point. The ultimate long-term legacy of Pablo Escobar might be the introduction of the hippos to South America. They may dominate the entire continent. So here's my question to you. What will be said of us 30 years after we're dead? Because it's coming. There's going to be a day that w- when we've been dead for 30 years. And all I'm saying, let's live our lives and let's do something so that we do something and build something so that our great-grandchildren might be reached by those who are part of the work that were reached under our watch, that they might be affected by what we do today. Let's dig deeper. Let's build a little bit more. Let's give with a spirit of generosity. I don't want the story of my life just to be about hippos. I want to reach people for Christ. And this will change how you handle things. It'll change how you handle setbacks, right? Anyone here ever built a house, built it on time, under, under budget, over budget, right? Usually over budget and extra time. I remember when, uh, this is just purely anecdotal, I remember when, when my wife and I lived in California, we had a church in California, Escondido, California, and we, we bought a starter house there for $400,000 and one salary, I was by myself, uh, in terms of making money, Renee was at home with the kids, which is a value we wanted. And, and um, we didn't have any pictures on the wall. We didn't have any knickknacks, no Pier 1 imports, nothing. And so my parents come out to visit us, and my dad's looking at the sheetrock, and he's like, do you, do you all, like, is this a California thing? Do you all don't put pictures on the wall? I'm like, Dad, there's gold in those walls. That sheetrock is so expensive. We don't dare mess it up with a nail and besides, we can't afford any pictures or anything. There's gold in those walls. What I'm trying to tell you today is there's gold in you. You are an earthen vessel. You are made out of dust. But God has breathed into you. And you have God and Jesus living in you in the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ. You are the bride of Christ. There's leadership gold in you. There's a God dream in your heart that when you're poised and positioned as a son or daughter of of that house, of God's house, all of a sudden it can shift into what takes place outside the house. There's gold in the walls. There's treasure in the attic. It was five years ago that I read in the news a couple uh, was frustrated one day during a rainstorm. They found out their roof was leaking. And so they're a French couple. They, they bought a house in Toulouse, France, and they lived there for years. And they had a door that led up to the attic. And they had never gone to that door because they had no reason to go up in the attic. The, the, roof, looked, the roof was working fine until it had a big rainstorm. And so the roof started leaking. So they had to go into this door, into this attic. And we have a picture of the attic. They went into this attic. And as they, they found the leak, and there they discovered a, a large painting covered in dust and they thought, hmm, this is strange. And so they, they took the painting down and they, they took it to some local experts and the local experts were a bit shocked and they were like, uh, we think you really found something here. See, inside their attic that they had bought this house, it was an older house, was a rare Caravaggio painting. It was an Italian masterpiece and it was worth over $171 million dollars. 
I've got a picture of it for you there. One curator said of the Caravaggio painting, there are only 65 of his paintings in the world and we found the 66th painting in an attic. Wow, they found it in an attic. It's incredible. So this couple is like, we are so grateful the roof leaked. They sold the painting and made $171 million. Some of you are like, how come that can't happen to me? Why can't I buy a house with a rare Caravaggio painting, right? Sometimes it's okay when the clay pot breaks and you discover what's inside of you. Have you ever had a difficult circumstance that you went through and you discovered, hey, you know what? I had strength I didn't know. I had a rare painting I didn't, I didn't even know. Because you found out you have God living in you. You may look like a pile of dirt, but the reality is, is you're God's masterpiece. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. You are God's masterpiece. You are God's painting, and there'll never be another one like you. You are as rare as that Caravaggio painting in an attic. So don't bury the treasure that you are. You are the bride of Christ. Get your wedding dress on. Let your light shine for this world. Christians, we need to be shining today. We're living in a national time when we, our, our nation is hurting. The seeds of the Civil War are still blooming in our nation around racism, around the color of the clay. And Paul says 2,000 years ago, hey, it's not about the color of the clay or how pretty your clay is or how big your clay is or how wrinkled your clay is. It's about what's inside. So can you see it? Can you believe it? Do you receive it? If you do, say amen. Let's pray. God of grace, we ask for your blessing and your healing upon our nation. We ask, Lord, that we would see everyone made in your image, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. Help us to know, Lord, that you have breathed within us this, this clay body that we have, this jar of clay that we are, that you have breathed into us and you have made your home in our hearts. And because of that, we can know who we are, that we are not worthless. We are that rare Caravaggio painting. We are a treasure in a jar of clay. But we're called to let that light shine, to reach out to those that are hurting in this world, to be an ambassador for Christ, to put on our wedding dress and to let our light shine. So Father, help us to realize as we start this series on buried treasures that we are that buried treasure. And we don't need to be buried anymore. We need to come out and show the world your light. We pray this in the name of Christ who taught us as we say it out together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us at Grace Presbyterian Church. We hope and we trust that this message was a blessing and gave you much encouragement as you face today. At Grace Presbyterian Church, we are a church family that welcomes everyone who welcomes everyone. And we would love to welcome you. So please join us either online or in person. You'll find a community that loves God and loves each other. And we are blessed by other people joining us. So please come and join us at Grace Presbyterian Church.